Well, thank you so much, Eric, for, for joining me today. I'm very excited to, to really talk about your journey and, and the phases that you've been in throughout your, your life and career and your journey up to, to this point. For those who don't know, I mean, if you don't mind going through it, it's, but it's wherever you want to start, but kind of going through your journey with social entrepreneurship, tech, food, now investing. I mean, you've kind of played in a bunch of different landscapes. Um, so, so walk us through the journey before uh, Astinor. Thank you, Gwen, for, for having me. Um, it's a it has been a long journey. Maybe I'll, I'll take a little um, bit of a long shortcut. I've uh, I've always been a foodie when I was young. I was exposed exposed to food by um, some of my family members. I, actually, my grandmother had a young nephew. Well, a young nephew was much older than I was, obviously. He was almost the age of my grandmother because he was the uh, the son of her older sister. The point is, he was a he was a chef. He was also gay, uh, which in the 1950s and 40s and 50s, especially 40s in France, was not the great thing to be. And uh, so he was a bit of, a, of an outsider in the family. And uh, but I really enjoyed going to his um, his place on on. Um, on weekends or on on the day off, and he would um, show me all kinds of tricks about doing things, you know, in 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 the kitchen. And I got exposed to a lot of things, including wine, because he would give me wine when I was like six or seven, just to try. You know, he said you have to start your palate and everything. And then you know, he passed away, and and I kind of put that in the back of my mind, and I kind of left it on the side um, because I was also a geek, and um, in <laughs> before geeks were very fashionable, so. I was doing math and physics and chemistry, and I ended up going to UC Berkeley, and I ended up going to Stanford. And I ended up starting uh, my career in Silicon Valley in the early 80s, my first job in 1982. And then, you know, the the um, dominant thinking or thought process about food at the time was, you know, food is a waste of time uh, because it takes you away from your computer. So um, I, I really repressed any side of, you know, any, any foodie side. Although when, when I would fly back to France and see my friends, I would um, splurge into, you know, going to a few restaurants and everything throughout the 80s and 90s. It's only when I moved back to Europe with Benchmark Capital, uh, I went on to launch Benchmark Capital Europe in 2000. And, and, um, and then I, I started to go you know, to restaurants again and, and even to meet some chefs that, um, you know, I felt were really interesting people in terms of the thought process. People like Jamie Oliver, people like René Retsepi at Noma, at the very beginning of Noma, people like Guy Savoie in Paris, um, who were some of the first people. I mean, Guy was one of the first guys that really put in, in light um, in, in the limelight, the, um, the farmers, the people that were actually producing the produce. And um, as opposed to, you know, just the chef that was doing magic. No, he was actually taking this fantastic produce coming out of, of farms and, and small scale producers and, and sublimate the thing. And it would be, it would be something that I really resonated back with my, my childhood. And so I became more and more interested by, by the food world. And in parallel, I'd launched with my friend Charlie Kleisner, a, a social entrepreneurship accelerator in India, out of all places. I, I think that was my, um, my midlife crisis. Um, so we, we spent quite a bit of time in India. And one of the main issues that we had to face as social entrepreneurs or as backers of social entrepreneurs was 
you know, in the early 2000s, how to ensure livelihood for farmers and mm. and uh, and people in the rural areas. And so looking at farming techniques and starting to be aware of the issues around soil erosion or soil mm-hmm. exhaustion more than soil erosion, soil exhaustion because of farming practices. So got exposed to the idea of uh, regenerating the soil. And so, um, so all these things came together um, a few years later as I was had become uh, chairman of the foundation that Jimmy Oliver started for food education of children. So it's called the uh, Jimmy Oliver Food Foundation. And I became more and more aware of the global issues that were linked to agri-food. Um, the fact that we had been developing worldwide a big system that has been had been developed to produce at very large scale in a very you know in a very systemic way cheap calories but yeah. not cheap not cheap nutrients and that hmm. that was the big disconnect and that when I kind of you know understood that 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 was a big shock I, I, I thought wow you know everything is linked you know we're we're pushing farmers to do more we don't want to pay them for quality we only want only want to pay them for quantities. Hmm. So we are pushing them to do more empty calories that we are distributing and marketing to people and telling them, you know, food is cheap, but it's abundant. And um, at the same time, unfortunately, creating a huge health disaster, which unfolds very slowly. And that's one of the big issues is that when you tell someone, if you continue to eat like that, you're going to be dead in 20 years. They look at you and say, wow, this is bad news. I'll do something in 18 years. Yeah. And and because right now I don't see the point in getting too excited about it. So that's that's really my my journey is was at the time looking at the global issue you know on both sides farmers and consumers and in between a system that looked very stable and but producing the wrong things with the you know by pushing farmers to the brink for the most part so that could have been very depressing except that you know I I always see the bright side, or I always always seek the bright side. I always, <laughs> always find it, and and I started to look with the foundations. We were looking at backing scientists that were working on everything around food, and um, and I was one of the donors, so I, I you know I, I could push some of the um, uh, some of these um, science uh, developments, and I became interested by the the things on both sides of the equation, really at the extreme. One was the development in soil biology and the understanding that the soil is not inert that it's actually the undersoil is made mm-hmm. of a, a lot of i mean a very rich ecosystem of bacteria and and nematode and, and little little things that mostly get killed by industrial farming because we do deep tilling we right. leave the soil barren during the winter and then we add a lot of things in it to foster the, the the fast growth of a single crop variety and we don't want anything else to leave and right. so we are doing a pretty good job at that by killing everything yep. and and until recently probably 20 years ago 
roughly. We believe that it's, the soil was actually like sand. You, know, you would just put NPK and, and, and plants would grow and it didn't matter what was under. It's only really recently, and that's how you know, I got shocked by the discovery that in, uh, in around 2010, 10, 12, that uh, people recently discovered the richness of this under soil mm. but because most of the bacteria, most of the life is anaerobic, which means that if you bring it to the to oxygen, to the oxygen of, of the air, they die. So when you do a, a soil sample and you bring it to a lab, by the time it goes to the lab, everything is dead. On the, <laughs> and then you only see what's at the top and you see the minerals, but you don't see the underlife. So it was really interesting to, to see that, that that was a really discount discovery, which really changed everything and, and got people to really think about making the soil alive again. And it's called regenerative agriculture. And it's yep. how you know, people got into that. On the other side of the equation, at the very end of the, of the supply chain, you have people that started to look at the microbiome of people, you know, what's in your gut mm-hmm. and started to explore the complexity and the importance of matching your microbiome to, I mean, to a certain profile that, that also corresponds to what you eat and that your diet has a big influence on that micro, microbiome profile. If you eat too much sugar, it's going to fuel the, the proliferation of, of things which are not very good for you. Uh, if you don't eat enough fiber, if you eat that and so on. So people are just starting to look at that. And what's really fascinating, and I did that a couple of years ago, was to bring two scientists that would never talk to one another. The scientists that work on the microbiome of the soil, the microbiome that, you know, the same bacteria, the bacteria that are around the roots and the mycelium of the, the plants and the scientists who are working on the microbiome of the human guts. Mm. And they are, they, they were talking for the first time in a, in a, an event, a small event that I organized in, in the Loire Valley a couple of years ago. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, because we were also working on a microbiome with a local winery, we had, uh, we had the two saying, wow, you know, this is strikingly similar. We're talking about the same, you know, the same bacteria and the same, the same different interaction and, and everything, which really reinforced my idea that there is a connection to nature that is really deep between who we are through our macro, microbiome, through our yeah. guts yeah. and the soil. And that this entire system, the food system, that is producing these empty calories, these, these, uh, these products that are hyper-refined, have been hyper-processed, that has broken this link between the two, and that's not very healthy. So that's how I got really into my idea of starting a, a, an investment firm that would look for things that are almost like biomimicry uh, inspired, you know, so mm-hmm. things that are going to, how can we augment nature instead of replacing nature and and find technology? So deep tech, it could be AI based, it could be precision farming, everything, but but really apply to making nature more efficient at doing the right things for us and for the environment. I mean, we, are, we are just a drop in the thing, but we are so many of us. <laughs> There's so many of us that we need to think about, you know, how do we deal with this, this number of people? You mentioned uh, soil erosion versus soil exhaustion. 
or in two separate terms there. Can you just talk about the, the difference between those two? Yes, and it's also linked to drought versus desertification. I think okay. there is a, right now, we are just on the cusp of really accepting the fact that we have a, a really screwed up system. We talk about, you know, short-term crisis. You know, there is a drought, there is some, mm-hmm. uh, there is some erosion. Uh, so it's, it, it seems like it's, it's very temporary that we're going to be, we can continue to do what we do and things are going to be good again, you know, soon because, you know, we'll have a better season because uh, we'll have a little bit less. We, we can put a few things to, um, to uh, slow down the, um, the, the erosion, but he is, we have exhausted the soils. We are in a, in a change of climate, not going to argue whether it's a it's totally man-made or not, but we have a change of climate. And there are three pillars. I'm, I'm extending a little bit beyond just your question, but there are three pillars that underpin the, uh, the, the current agri-food system in the world. And these three pillars are really that, you know, water is free for the farmers, that oil is not too expensive, probably maximum 60, 65, $70 a barrel. And that the climate is going to stay in a certain band because if we don't have these three things, then bad things happen. And, and let me just develop quickly on that. Water, it's obvious. You know, if we if we start to have to pay for water because water becomes more and more expensive, 70% or more of the water that we use in the world today is used by, by farmers for irrigation. Because wow. The way, we, yeah, seventy percent of the water we use. That's you know that means that if we have less and less water because we have a climate that has changed and patterns have changed, then we're in trouble unless we do we start doing farming differently. There are ways to do farming mm-hmm. that will reduce by ninety percent the amount of water we need, but we're not there, and we're pretending that next year is going to be better. The other one is. The price of oil, it's not that much to fuel the tractors. You know, tractors are, I mean, they, they use oil, but what is the issue is really the, the making of fertilizers. Because we have been exhausting the soils, we need more and more fertilizers. So the, the, soil, the soils are pretty much dead right. and right. We, we, they cannot sustain any crops anymore in most places or not enough. And so we need more and more fertilizers, more and more potent fertilizers. And those fertilizers require a lot of energy to be produced. It's the, hmm. we're using the Aberbosch, which was a great invention at the time, a way of doing synthetic um, fertilizers. That is, that is costing a lot more and more money because we, have, uh, we, we are using more and more oil on that. And by the way, today, the making of fertilize, synthetic fertilizers creates about 4% of the global gas emissions, 4% wow. by itself, just that. Huh. Um, so that's also not sustainable because if the, if the price of oil goes up, and there's no reason why it wouldn't go up going forward because we don't have enough energy yet. So we are, we are pushing the, the system there. And the final one, which is you know, more dangerous, is the fact that we have been using less and less uh, varieties in, uh, in agriculture. So we, are, we only use a few rice varieties. We only use a few corn varieties. Out of, mm-hmm. the, 
hundreds that did exist before. Sometimes we are down to two worldwide for soya or for, or for wheat. And those varieties have been hyper-specialized, hyper, you know, they're, they're super efficient, but they assume that we are staying at a certain level of frost versus um, temperature, heat, hygrometry, even wind, because, you know, if you have too much wind, if you have long, long, um, uh, long week, then, you know, it's going to go down. So you want a short week. I mean, there are lots of things that uh, can, can make your crops much less efficient because of the, the changing climate. And it is changing. And it's changing quickly. And when it's not changing, when you have big storms, it could be a political storm, like what we have in Ukraine today, that creates the mm-hmm. same type of, of issue. So we have a very, because everything is, you know, is, is now as long supply chains. So we have, we have a big issue with our system. It's much more fragile than what we were thinking about. So the, the time is, you know, we, we don't have time. We need to act quickly to change our system to something that through technology, we can re, um, re, you know, rejig the system, make it much more local, much more seasonal, and and much more, you know, environmentally and socially friendly, uh, which we can do. But it's going to take a few years. But most of the innovations are happening. You know, it's in the pipe, and it's and you'd have several waves of innovation one after another. But again, the you know, the the optimist side of me sees the uh, the solution coming in the next few years. I've been talking to a a lot of people lately, I would say the last 12 months or so around regenerative farming, cellular meats or cultured meats, cellular agriculture in general. There's a lot of different things going on in the space of, of, of trying to reconcile the issue of, of food globally. And the one issue that seems to be in common with sort of everybody is that we're trying to you know, use technology, which is really producing some really interesting innovations and in, in going where we want to go around food. But the, the big elephant in the room is that the supply chain is built, you know, for the last century. And in order to really make the change I think we need at scale is that we have to build and create an entirely different supply chain of how food moves around the world, whether it's domestically or, or globally. Do, do you see hope in, in that, that there is a way to, while having the traditional supply chain still run sort of as normal, parallel to that, build a completely new, you know, innovative sort of 21st century supply chain that, you know, can handle everything we want it to handle, it can provide affordable food with really rich nutrients at affordable prices rather than, you know, cheap food with empty calories, empty nutrition. I guess, is that something that you see is possible and in is sort of being done just from a supply chain perspective? That's a great question. And and that's something that a couple of years ago, most of the the first generation of entrepreneurs in, in the new food system were kind of glossing over because they assumed that, you know, things were going to happen by themselves. So the supply chain logistics is one of the biggest issues. The good news, and again, I don't want to sound like, you know, I always look at good news only, but the good news is people don't eat a single type of food, they eat multiple types of food. So or, or at least most people do. I remember some people that there was a in um in, in the documentary I saw a guy that was eating only McDonald's every day of his life. Um, and he was only eating Big Macs every day, which of course you know, makes it fairly monomaniac. But most people don't. Most people are gonna be eating you know something different every day, even if there's a rotation and you're gonna have five or six different meats. So 
So the good news is you don't need to fix every single thing at the same time. And when you think about it, think about the electrical cars and and the electrification yeah. of cars. That was a much more daunting process because energy is energy. And also, you are, this, it's not like you, you can put something different in your car. You either put oil or you, you put, or you put uh, electricity. But you cannot go and say, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to put some uh, food juice in my car or I'm going to put some, you know, I'm, I'm going to put some, um, I'm going to put a windmill on top of my car or something. No, you have to have the, you have to have the energy at different points that you're going to have on the side of the road. And so it's either petrol stations or in the petrol station, you're going to switch and progressively put the energy uh, supply. So that's a daunting, a really daunting logistics problem. And you had many other logistics problems that you had to solve in the manufacturing of the cars, the batteries and everything. So yet we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. In 10 years, we'll have probably um, completed the critical mass uh, of, of this switch. Compared to that, the multiple changes that need to happen in the food system, we need to think about, you know, what is the capacity that is needed for fermentation for all kinds of new food? What is the capacity that we need in terms of silos for different types of grains um, and grains that may be much more decentralized than what we have today. So the silos may not be um, the same tomorrow that they are today. So you have lots of logistics things to think about, but they are multiple. And so even if one takes longer, I think we'll have a lot of progress made on many others. So I'm, I'm fairly confident that when you, when you have opportunities to create businesses, like in fermentation, for example, it is clear that if all the new alternative protein that rely on fermentation processes were to go up in scale tomorrow, there would be a huge bottleneck in fermentation capacity. And especially if the big companies start getting into that. But you know what? There are lots of entrepreneurs who are already looking at that and they are creating capacity, capacity ramp up. And you even have people who are looking at it from a financial point of view and looking at, you know, how do you attract investors in the right way to, to fund this uh, capacity building? We have more than ever, we have thousands, well, I mean, actually we have hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs in the world who are looking for opportunities. They are all interconnected. They all read uh, the same information online and they are aware of new opportunities being created. They think laterally, and the probability that someone is going to come up with a good idea rapidly is much higher than it was 20 years ago, or even more so 40 years ago, when we didn't have these brains interconnected in the world. I think that none of the issues that you mentioned require a fundamental scientific discovery. They're all about engineering. It's all about right. initially think, tinkering with something and, and scaling it up to a um, to a large scale solution. You mentioned had you know founders and and companies and, and some of these startups. I'd love to talk about you know some some companies that you've invested in that that you feel are doing some incredible things. I had Carlo from Monarch Tractor on the other podcast, Disruptors for Good, where I, where I talked to the founders, you know, creating the companies and building. Robert from Etero, which I believe you're invested in both of those. So those are there, there's so many different phenomenal ideas and companies being built 
but talk about some maybe some some others within the portfolio that have come across and and the team's been excited about it and really you know are building the future. Yeah. So um, yeah, and and Monarch is is really a great company because it's it's tractors. It's it's also you know it it would help farmers concentrate on, on things which are less repetitive. But it's also data, and so also about yeah. collecting data and and applying applying the the right amount of of water or the right amount of of fertilizers when needed or the right amount of pesticide if you need to uh, do something so i'll give you two examples one is a company called viv in switzerland and they they basically at, at the core they have deciphered the language of plants so they can they can listen mm. to the signals which are uh, you know if you have electro Electromagnetic signals that that run around the different uh, the trunk of, of the tree or the, um, the the stems and and even the leaves. So if you if you put uh, if you put two electrodes at different places of of the plants, you're going to listen. There's going to be a lot of, of things happening. And if you can if you can decide you know distinguish the signal from the noise, you'd be able, and they have been able, applying, again, AI and, and machine learning, they have been able to recognize the signal that the plant sends to the rest of, of its body when it's being bitten by a pest. And it's a different signal if it's a caterpillar that's starting chomping of the leaf, or if it's a, an aphid that is starting to, to um, bite on the, on the root. And uh, so it's going to tell the, the, the rest of the brand, I, you know, we are being attacked. And, and then maybe some signals are going to go through the, the soil, through the micelli, and say, you know, something's happening. Now, why do we care about that, apart from the, the science fiction side of things? It's because <laughs> if you have, this is pretty cool to think that, you know, plants. Yeah, this is wild. They say, oh, you know, it's the farmer coming. Let's, uh, let's pretend we're not ripe yet because we don't want to be harvest. I mean, you could imagine lots of things in terms of novels. But the reality is what you want to do is you want to get a head start, you know, what's going on so that if you are being worn by your plant at, in, in somewhere that, hey, we have caterpillars starting to come in, in the field. Can you guys do something about it? You know, that's pretty much what the plant is doing. And if you come with your pesticide on before you can see anything, but because the plants started to shout, then you'll be able to put maybe 1% of the pesticide to get rid of the beginning of the, of the, of the pest you know, infestation. You'll be able to, if the plant says, you know, I'm I'm really thirsty, you know, there's I'm starting to be stressed because there's not enough water. Maybe you can bring the water now, not tomorrow, when you start seeing the, the leaf start to, you know, right, right, to, and 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 not have an impact on the on the crop uh, density. You know, so all these things that today we have been taking for granted that you have to wait until you see something to intervene. Right. If you can do it much faster, you'd be able to do a much, you know, so, so that's precision farming. Then you can send the monarch tractor that's going to come by itself and say, you know, the pests are here. I can see them now and apply the, the solution. But it's wow. going to be a small percentage of what you would have had to, uh, to spray and so it's much better for nature. It's much better for much better for everything. That's one company that is really exciting. You know, it's a, a it's part of the solution, 
but it's a, it is quite a, a breakthrough in the way you can think about your interaction with your field, with the plants, and, and with wow. nature. Another, another example, totally different, but really interesting in terms of thinking about biomimicry is Insect with a Y. It's a company we, we, we found in France, so not very far from, uh, from you know, our headquarters in Brussels. And we, um, we were looking for insects a few years back as an idea. And we started by looking at companies who are selling uh, insects as a, as a more, more like a gimmick. You know, you can eat that for, yeah. uh, right. you know, like dried crickets or something. Uh, I was not really convinced that that would be a huge market. But I met those entrepreneurs, Antoine Hubert and, and a couple of his, um, of his co-founders, and they had been studying all kinds of different uh, insects, but they bumped into one with a biomimicry mindset. They said, there's one particular insect that it's, it's, a, it's a beetle, which produces a larvae that when you use it for bait, in uh, when you go fishing and try to get salmons and trouts in uh, in rivers you have a <laughs> infinite well, not infinite but much better yield in uh, your you you catch the 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 fish and your neighbors who are not using the same bait are not going to get them and they said why is that and they decided to look at it and they found that they had a in this particular larvae was really nourishing and that it actually provides a metabolic boost, a metabolism boost for the fish that eat them. They become stronger. Mm. And so when they are in the river going up and, right. uh, and going up to spawn, you know, this is what they are. Oh, this is great. And when they are babies, it's even better for them. So they started to look at that and they started to do some medical trials and they found that, yeah, I mean, the thing is actually really amazingly nourishing and it has some properties that are very unique to it. There are no other insects that provide that. And so, um, and so they started to look at how can they grow them in large quantities. And uh, by serendipity or because nature is well, well, um, well intentioned, they actually love to be huddled together because that's how they fight against birds. They just stay together. So they, they form a big pack, you know, they are. So to grow them into, and they like to stay in places where they, there's no sun, no one sees them. So they decide to put them in trays in a, you know, in, in a vertical farm and, and feed them with what they eat, which is the leftover from, from cereals. They actually eat the bran um, from cereals. They eat the, the chaff. They, they eat the, what is the leftover from, from breweries and stuff like that. So something that no one wants really. And, and they transform that into, you know, a lot of very juicy meat, which is what they are, you know, these this big fat little uh, larvae. And so you can, you can raise them in very large quantities. They are very happy. And the happier they get, the better, the more digestible they are by animals. <laughs> so there's a, you know, there's a self-positive self uh, feedback loop there. And they can grow a lot of them. So that's a, a great replacement for fish feed. Fish feed being what um, what you get, or fish meal rather. Fish meal is what you get when you go and empty the ocean from, and you get all the small fish, the small anchovies, the small, big, really, really tiny ones 
anchovy, sardines, and, and so on, mackerels, the tiny ones, they, they, are, they float in the ocean and people go there with huge nets, they right. catch them and they, re, they put that into some kind of paste, put that into pellets at the end. And that's what you give to salmons. And it's, it's actually iron food for salmon in pens when you have aquaculture. It's also really used for feeding your cats and, uh, and the cat food <laughs> and, and so on. So, but the paradox is we think aquaculture is great because we are you know, saving this, the wild salmon by eating the, the, the raised salmon. But the raised salmon, in order to be fed with, with good quality food, we are emptying the ocean from, you know, and, and for other species that are being, um, being put to in problem. So that particular insect, as that, it's a, it's a great replacement. It's actually better for the young salmon because it's, give them this metabolic boost that I was talking about. But the, the, the real additional beauty is not only do we have a super sustainable way of feeding cats and salmons that is CO2 friendly, that you know, um, is great for biodiversity, but when you raise them, they actually uh, produce a lot of guano. You know, they, they produce, they reject more than they put in, in terms of, of weight. So if you have a, a factory that does 100,000 tons of little creature, critters that end up being 67,000 because it's a very high proportion of, of protein. So 100,000 tons factory a year, 100,000 tons of larvae, 67,000 tons of, of pure protein, and more than 100,000 tons of guano. And that guano is a fantastic organic fertilizer that works wonders for people who are growing vegetables or people who are growing wine, so the, you know, the, um, uh, the grapes. And, um, and that, as I mentioned earlier, finding replacements to fertilizers that are produced today with the Aberbush process we are using a lot of natural gas, actually coming from Russia, and creating a huge amount of CO2 emission. Here, mm-hmm. you, have a, you have the replacement that is totally organic, that has no CO2 emission, and that we have started to, um, to manufacture or, or grow in very large quantities, having them live a very happy life of, uh, of an insect until the very moment where they get... You know, they get they go through a steam a jet steam and they die very peacefully, like uh, like shrimps. You know, really. And then you put them in centrifuge, you separate the uh, the skin from the from from the protein, and you get this extremely sustainable source of fertilizer, protein, and even in their case, they also produce some oil that can be used for all kinds of different um, different things. So that's a that's that's a fascinating story. Wow. And and we are we are very proud of having found them at the very beginning of their journey. I wanted to get your thoughts, a couple more questions here before we end. One would be on cellular agriculture and, and, and cellular meat or cultured meat, as some people call it. This idea that we could, to me, I'm just so excited about it. And maybe I'm too excited about it because maybe there's, you know, things I'm, I'm missing here. But the idea that we can just take, you know, cells from an animal without harming it and, you know, essentially recreate exactly recreate meat or recreate fish, other types of seafood, you know, other animals we're not used to eating. We can simply take cells out and create healthy, you know, meat or seafood again, again, whatever it may be. To me, this seems like such 
a transformational shift in what's possible, not only feeding the world, but feeding the world healthy food and at scale where we can we can create enough food. We don't have to factory farm animals and, you know, have that ugly, ugly, ugly side of it anymore. Am I missing something here? Or, or this is, to me, this is sort of the future of how we possibly feed the world and how we possibly take our, uh, our dependence off of you know, the slaughter of animals to, to feed ourselves. This seems a much more dynamic, efficient, and healthier way to do it. I think you're, yeah, you're missing a lot of things around that. But that's, that's okay. <laughs> it sounds very, um, very idyllic. And, 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 um, but there's multiple aspects to it. Um, first of all, the cost, and, yep. and yep. which is linked to what you were talking about earlier in terms of capacity building. If we were to create, and I get to, the benefits of it or not. But if we were to, to scale that industry, you need a huge amount of calories to feed the uh, the, the, the cells themselves ah, to grow. Okay. Uh, yeah. You need a lot of sugars that you need to grow somewhere and you need the right level of sugar and everything. So there's a, there's a capacity building that people don't talk about, but you know you don't create it out of thin air. You know, it, it's really, you need to feed those, back, those, um, those cells so that they can grow. So that's by itself is a really interesting you know challenge that again the first few companies that got into that they were very focused for the right reason on creating a few grams or a few kilos but you know when we get to the millions of tons uh, that's going to be another right. issue now you may ask yourself two fundamental questions the first one is what is healthy in the meat and it may not be just the muscle it may be everything around the muscle you know the muscle is is the the pure protein side of things but when we say you know you should eat when we tell kids or you know the, there's some popular you know there's some wisdom in the crowd that say people say you know you should have that and that because when you eat some meat and especially some inners of the animals you get some of the vitamins and some you know like vitamin k and 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 you get some of the uh, amino acids that are very difficult to find in in um in plants. That's why people say, you know, it's a healthy diet, has a little bit of everything. It's in large part because you find in, not in the muscle itself, but in everything around. The, um, the polyphenols, for example, the thing that gives the flavor to meat are not stored in the cells of the, of the, of the muscle, but they are, they are stored in the interstice, you know, the thing which is made of fat that has been capturing the, the thing which is, you know, gives you both the flavor and the good things for you. The innards of, your, of, of the, of the uh, animals is also what historically has been very nourishing for people because, again, you cannot find that in, for the most part, in, um, in plants. So the nutritional value of building just, you know, scaffolding of, of pure protein cells may not be that great and you may find a better proteins uh, coming out of um, coming out of um, uh, plant-based uh, type of thing so I don't think it's gonna be the only way to do things and I, and I really hope for everyone that we can get to a point where from a cost you know from a cost base from a you know price point everything it becomes affordable to do that for a number of applications but by then I would like to think that people will start looking at 
other type of food and and plant-based food that have the same taste as as meat can be maybe even more nutritious and you know have more fiber and have all kinds of different things which are better and the last point is suddenly we have this this you know negation of what life is about we we have a we have a net in, in nature predation is at the, at the basis of of what happens on earth and you just need to look under the ocean and see what's happening you know during the day and especially during the night to see that it never stops you have predation all the time you have predation all the time in on in nature so pretending that we're gonna and we need some of the animals to be in the prairie because that's how you maintain a healthy ecosystem if you if you have a prairie um, in, uh, in in nature, if you go into Africa, your prairie, you have animals who actually are eating the plants, and you have some animals eating the animals who are eating the plants. So today we have stopped. We stopped having some of the animals which are incompatible with uh, with mankind because it's kind of complicated to have holy holy winos going around, mammoth and 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 things uh, next to your uh, playground of where your kids are playing. Sure. So <laughs> we stopped having that, and we have cows, and we have the you know domestic cows, and we have go- goats, and we have a few things. We have way too many of them today, but we don't want to go all the way to say we should not have any of them. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's always the um, you know the good intention. At some point, we go all the way. We go all the way to have too many farm animals, way too many of them. But if we have ten percent of them left um, or five percent of them left, which still be a, a big number with uh, with people that are raising them with all the care and everything, what do you do when they get to the end of their lives? You know, and um, are you going to just let them rot in the on the field, or are you going to recycle them into sure. into something? So I think yeah. that's the type of, of of discussions and conversation that people could have instead of being either the carnivores that say nothing should change and the and the vegans who say you know we should stop any killing i even right. heard people that say we need to take the high ground and try to reform lions and in in africa so they stop uh, killing these poor zebras i mean you know there are limits to uh, our hubris yeah. as as a, as a as a species yeah there's sort of a natural ecosystem and life cycle that you know the animal kingdom goes through right like it's just that's just nature yeah. in itself i'd like to end the last question here is oh so many questions i want but i want to be respectful of your time so so the last one i'll, I'll end with here is you mentioned the the foundation before that seemed to be a really amazing catalyst right for for everything sort of you're doing now on the investment side and, and looking at ways to you know to impact the world and the planet right through through investing which is to me so powerful kind of talk about the the dynamics of nonprofits being a learning mechanism, right? Being able to maybe, you know, take a little bit of, of risk into like scientists to try to develop something new or something like that. And then you have sort of the investment side that you can sort of learn, you know, what the foundation did um, and its research and its sort of risk taking or, or just research in general, and then take that into the investing, investing world. I love this idea of kind of nonprofits having that ability to, to take you know, risk, not in the same way that, you know, an investment firm might take a risk, right? There's, there's risk on both sides, but we need, I think, innovative nonprofits, right? To look at problems and be a part of, uh, of solving it because we won't get this venture capital in or this private capital in if there's not some type of research that is, 
you know, subsidize in some way, right? Investors don't want to subsidize perhaps the necessary research that goes into all this stuff. Like we said, it's going it, to, it takes a lot, it takes time, energy, and, and money, and it's going to be, you know, years and years in this life cycle. But how do you look at your time at the nonprofit and the foundation? And, and is it still doing similar work today? So, uh, what you, I think you gave most of the answers in your question, but. <laughs> So, yeah, so Jamie decided a couple of years ago to um, change some of the way his uh, non-for-profit work was, was going. So the foundation kind of changed and, and we closed the, um, the programs we had at the time. And it's, it's much more uh, focused on advocacy now, uh, which is which, which he's very good at. So he has a lot of impact on that. We at Astana uh, have chosen to continue to, work, to give some of our profits to um, to non-for-profit companies, you know, it's, um, and and so we support. We already support a, f- a couple of non-for-profit. One in in India that I've been working with in the past already that helps small farmers, actually small women farmers, mm-hmm. to uh, transition to regenerative agriculture, and they already have uh, trained about seventy thousand farmers um, and. Or big, the big goals we gave them is that what would it take to get to a million small farms? There are there are several million small farms in in um, there are mostly family farms around the around villages and so on. That when you think about the impact that could that could have, and we are only you know helping them with uh, with some money, some data, you know, some access to technology and and so on. And I think this this is the type of things that cannot do as a for profit organization, but with a with the right the right amount of money right. you know, directed in the right place, you can have a huge uh, huge impact. The other one we are looking at is is a is a company is a organization called VIF in France, and they do work with local communities, so mostly small towns. They come and, and they work with the mayor and they work with the schools and they work with the um, you know the, the municipal canteens and, and, and they work with the, the parents, parents association, uh, sports association. And they and they bring a lot of food education to people um, about diet, about the uh, the issues around um, you know what you could develop if you don't pay attention to your diet, the cost it has to, to the community, and and a way to make to support people in their transitions through what they call social marketing, which is really um, supporting people uh, with uh, with you know, social networks and, mm. and and so on. So it's um, it's a very very efficient way and you can measure the decrease of obesity rate in the kids population and as you as as we discussed at the beginning especially in low-income communities all over europe all over the us you have this skyrocket um, you know uh, level and and Making you know, putting you know bringing it down is is super super important. Unfortunately, relying on governments for that is yeah. not difficult. Good enough. So yeah. it requires, uh, and it's very difficult to do it for profit. So that's one of the one of the um, cases where definitely helping people who are helping others is the right way to do it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I, I truly appreciate taking the time. 
time. I know you're busy. Best of luck to you and the team for the next decade to come. And, you know, can't wait to, to see all the companies that, that, that come out of the, your network and portfolio. I've already seen a, a bunch and talked to a bunch. So it, it's been, uh, it's been really just, just amazing to see what allocating funds correctly can do, right? It's such an important thing to have allocators of capital, you know, put, put, put their dollars to in the right startups and the right founders. So really appreciate you taking the time and best of luck going forward. Thank you very much, Grant.